Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 9. This morning we're going to be considering the sixth trumpet. In the series of trumpet judgments, today we come to the sixth. And this is in chapter 9, verses 13 to 19. And the last two verses of the chapter speak of what we've already seen in the first six plagues. If you look at the outline there in your bulletin, we begin at verse 13 with a voice from the golden altar. In verses 19 to 14, we see the great army from the Euphrates River. We learn of its origination, its commission, its size, what it's like, and its destructive power. And then, as I said, we conclude in verses 20 to 21 with the statement on the impenitence of those who survived the plagues of the first six trumpets. Let me read the word of God now. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And then that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jansen and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three were the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth, and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils. And idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Amen. So let's look now at the sixth trumpet. As we come to the sixth trumpet in verse 13, we look first of all and I guess I should have read this, was in verse 12, which is the transition verse from the fifth trumpet to the sixth. And it says this, One woe is past, that is, the fifth trumpet, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Remember the Greek word woe is an interjection. It's a sound word expressing a cry of pain, like ah or oh, that type of sound that becomes an interjection in our language. It was used to express profound grief in the face of impending disaster and in the view of great calamity. And so these trumpets are expressing great distress, great disaster, and calamity. After this transition, we come to verse 13 where we have a voice from the golden altar. The sixth angel sounds his trumpet, 
trumpet judgment. And what John hears is a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. And so the sounding of the trumpet, the voice from the golden altar, and what follows are all closely connected. Now, what are we talking about when we speak of the golden altar? Well, we saw this golden altar in chapter 8 and verse 3. You'll remember. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God and unto the angels, or out of the angel's hand. The golden altar speaks of the altar of incense that was given to the people of God in the Old Testament as a symbol of the fact that they could come into God's presence and pray unto him. The golden altar was a symbol of the prayers of God's people, and the incense that was burned upon it was the picture of those prayers rising before his presence. Here in this context of the book of Revelation, in chapter 8, verse 3, and also if you remember in chapter 6, verse 9, where we had the altar again spoken of, where the martyrs were under the altar and praying to God for vindication of the truth and the righteousness of their faith. These were prayers that God would bring his righteous judgment to pass on the wicked, the persecutors of the church, and those who had rejected Jesus Christ. And so here again, we are brought to the prayers of the saints in close connection with the judgments of the book of Revelation. The people of God are not mere spectators of history. God has given to us the key, the power, to be movers and shakers in history far more than all of the bankers and all of the politicians. And it's through our prayers to our living God, asking him to answer his own promises concerning justice. It is a power that we do not fully understand and we do not use for God's glory and for the good of the earth. And for the good of the country, for the overthrow of the wicked, is the blessing of the people. The people mourn, it says in the book of Proverbs, when the wicked bear rule, but they rejoice when the righteous are in authority. And so here we see again in Revelation, this connection between the prayers of God's people and the judgment on the wicked. C.B. Caird, in his commentary on Revelation, says... A voice coming from the altar of incense can be construed only as an answer to the prayers, the prayers of the whole church, already offered as incense by the angel of the presence. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And Ispen Beckwith comments, The altar here designates as the altar of incense is that especially associated with the prayers of all the saints in the introduction to the trumpet visions, chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. Thus, the command which comes from its horns, its corners, is represented as in answer to those cries. The connection between the command given and the prayers is made more vivid by the poetic personification of the altar which, as in chapter 16, verse 7, utters its voice. The latter passage shows that the voice is not that of God. God is not addressed there. In other words, the voice from the altar that brings about judgment of the sixth trumpet is the voice of the church's prayers. End quote. Powerful. 
And I won't say more about that subject today, but we have uh, emphasized that throughout. And why? Because the book of Revelation emphasizes the power of the church's prayers in the overthrow of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. So this is the voice from the golden altar that begins this sixth trumpet. It's the voice of prayer. Next, we have the great army from the Euphrates River set before us. In verses 14 through 19, as we already mentioned, there's these five aspects of this part of the vision. And the first is the origination of the army. That is, where does it originate from? We find out, first of all, that it finds its origin in four angels. Verse 14. The prayer from the altar is that the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, would loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. These angels appear from the context to refer angels who follow Satan. In Revelation 12.7 and Revelation 12.9, we hear of the dragon. We hear of Satan. Dragon's another name for Satan. But each time that it speaks of him there in those verses, it talks about and his angels, his ministers of evil, those angels that followed him in the rebellion against God. It appears from the context that these angels in verse 14 are not the good angels, but these are the evil angels, these are the demonic powers. In chapter 16, verse 14, in the parallel sixth vial, it also talks about kings of the earth coming from the Euphrates River. We learn that the ones who are leading that army are the spirits of devils, and I believe that's what we have here. These angels are the spirits of devils that seek to influence and direct nations into the courses of action that are amenable to the prince of darkness. In the Bible, we learn that angelic powers, both good and evil, are behind the scenes of what's happening in world history. God has his agents in the angelic realm who are doing his will, fighting against the powers of darkness. Satan has his also the fallen angels, who rebelled with him, whom we call devils or demons. It says in Ephesians 6, 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Paul is saying our ultimate battle in this world is spiritual, and it's not against the flesh and blood enemies that we see. He says rather we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places. This is all a reference to the orders of and principalities of these demonic powers under Satan. They're at work. That's who we really have to do. And so in Revelation here, the real battle, the real matter of history being out, uh, revealed and lived here is in this sphere. Daniel chapter 10 talks about princes that are behind the kingdoms of this world. And it's clear from Daniel that those princes refer to angelic powers of great stature. Here's what it says in Daniel 10.13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. 
Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I came unto thee, and now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come? These are insights. The veil is pulled back for a moment here, and we see the battle in the the angelic realm between the angels of God and the angels of the devil. And these princes of the kingdom of Persia, these princes of Greece, refer to evil powers, evil demonic powers who have been assigned by their dark lord to influence those kingdoms for the purposes of darkness. But God has his, and we see a battle here. What does it say? 21 days. God's angel was in warfare and hindered from getting and coming to Daniel with the message. But God sent, as it were, reinforcements, and they came. These four angels that we look at in our passage in Revelation are either the princes of the kings of the east, which Revelation 16.12 talks about, the parallel judgment of the sixth vial, who were with the Roman army that crossed the Euphrates River to put down the revolt against Rome that had taken place in Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, or they refer to the princes of the four Roman legions who came with Vespasian and his son Titus to crush the Jewish rebellion. Either way, I believe these four angels refer to those that are leading the great Roman army that will be the instrument of God's wrath that is the picture here of this trumpet judgment. So let's look at the development of the fifth and the sixth trumpet, how they relate. We saw last week that the fifth trumpet spoke of invasion of Judea by a demonic horde, a horrible demonic host that came to torment the Jewish apostates. That was an invasion of a demonic army, as it were. So here the sixth trumpet speaks of an invasion of Judea by the great Roman army that came to punish and subdue the Jews for their revolt, the revolt against Rome. The point being this, that God is using the Roman Empire and its army to punish Israel for the rejection and crucifixion of Christ, and then their subsequent rejection of God's offer of peace through the preaching of the gospel by the apostles. What we have in the sixth trumpet is not a spiritual army of demons, but a literal physical army that is being sent by God as the instrument of his judgment upon Israel. Remember, these 21 judgments that are spoken of in Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials, are speaking of God's course of judgment on apostate Judea in the first century. And central to that judgment is the Roman army. It says here that they will be coming from the great river Euphrates. And this is an important aspect of the vision. The Euphrates River is a literal river in the Middle East. And it was the northernmost border of the promised land of Israel. In Genesis 15:18, Deuteronomy 1:7 and 11:24, we, the boundaries of the promised land are spoken. 
and they go from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. This is the boundary of Palestine that God had promised to them. And it is from this region of the Euphrates where the great armies of the Old Testament, Assyria and Babylon, came under the direction of God's judging hand into, first of all, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was brought under judgment by the hand of God through the armies of Assyria and Babylon. And where did they come from? From the Euphrates region. They all had to cross the Euphrates to come in to Palestine. And so when we hear of the great river Euphrates, to someone who is versed in their Old Testament, of course, in those days, there wasn't an Old Testament scripture. There was just one printed Bible at the time. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. But as they hear this, they would think and instantly would come to mind, armies coming down upon the land of Judea in judgment. For that is what we see God's ways in the Old Testament. And those armies, Assyria and Babylon, were sent by God to judge Israel for their apostasy, for their unbelief. And so when we see here in this vision an army coming from that very region from which God had sent Assyrian Babylon, we are put on notice that he's sending another army from that same region into judgment. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 1, 13 to 14. Going back to the Old Testament, to Judah and their apostasy and God raising up Babylon. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto me a second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north, and evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. Jeremiah 1, 13 to 14. He's talking about the invasion of Judah from Babylon, out of the north, from the area of the Euphrates, the northmost border of your land, which was the Euphrates River. He then says in Jeremiah 4, 6, Set up the standard toward Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. That's what we see here in our passage. A great evil from the north. A great destruction upon the Jews. One more Jeremiah 6, 1. O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem. And blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a sign of fire in Beth Hakarim, for evil appeareth out of the north and great destruction. This is what we're seeing in this trumpet vision an evil coming from the north, a great destruction ordained of God for Judea. If we look at the history of this. War, we learn first of all that the Roman army came into Galilee from the north. That's how the Romans came. They did not come up from Egypt. They did not land on the coasts of Caesarea. They came from the north, from the region of the north, from the region of the Euphrates River. In fact, we're told specifically that the Roman general Vespasian gathered his army together and set off with his army to go into Judea from the city of Antioch. 
And if you look on your Bible maps, the city of Antioch is due west of the Euphrates River, almost on the Euphrates River, not quite. Furthermore, just as another interesting historical connection to the correctness of this interpretation, the picture of this army from the Euphrates was the Roman army. Josephus, as he summarizes at the end of the war and how Titus, who was then the commander because his father Vespasian had been raised to the point of the emperor, Nero had committed suicide, and the next Roman emperor was Vespasian. And so he left the war in Judea into the hands of his son. Well, as Titus gets the victory and is disbanding his troops afterwards, here's what Josephus says he did. He permitted the 10th legion to stay as a guard at Jerusalem and did not send them away beyond Euphrates where they had been before, end quote which is just an interesting statement because the central legion of his army had come from the Euphrates. And he honored them by allowing them to stay there as a guard on Jerusalem and didn't send them back to the Euphrates. What is our vision of? The army comes from where? That very place, the Euphrates. You see, using foreign Gentile nations to punish Israel for covenant unfaithfulness is something that God spoke of even back in Deuteronomy. When he warned the people of the judgments, the sanctions he would bring upon them if they rebelled. And in Deuteronomy 28, we have a summary of those sanctions. Here's what it says. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far and from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle, and the fruit of thy land, until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thine kind, or flocks, or thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until thy high and fence walls come down, wherein thou trustest. Throughout all thy land, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. And quote Deuteronomy twenty eight, forty nine to fifty two. This is exactly what the sixth trumpet is about. The covenant sanction of a foreign nation coming. And all that was described in Deuteronomy twenty eight, forty nine to fifty two literally happened under the Roman invasion. Listen to what he said to Habakkuk. God said to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was, was praying to God. He says, we're so wicked here in Judah. Lord, you're not seeing this. You're not judging it. You're not delivering us from the wickedness that's around us. And he says, yes, I am. And here's how I'm going to do it. Quote, behold ye among the heathen in regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans... Pause for a moment. That's another name for the Babylonians. I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses, let's look at our vision here as we go on, their horses are also swifter than leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. 
and their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. They shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be scorned unto them, and they shall deride every stronghold, and they shall heap dust and take it. End quote. You could substitute in that prophecy of the Babylonian Chaldean invasion of Judah in the Old Testament around 600 B.C., the word Rome. He says, behold, and this, this would be an interpretation of the sixth trumpet. You can use Habakkuk 1, 5 to 10 as a description of and trend and parallel text and commentary on our vision of the fifth trumpet. Behold, you work among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously. I will work a work in your days which you believe will not believe, though be told you, for lo, I raise up the Romans, that bitter and hasty nation. And then it goes on to talk how terrible and dreadful they are and their horses and how terrible their horses are. And what did we, what did we read when we did the trumpet, the center? It was on the terribleness of the horses. The sixth trumpet. So this is what we are talking about here in this passage. The sixth trumpet is a visionary depiction of the judgment of God on the apostate Jews through the Roman army. These angels, these, these demonic forces that were with Rome, Rome was a heathen nation. They were guiding, there was the princes of Rome, and these princes, these angels here, whether or not we understand them as being in, involved with the uh, nations that joined with Rome and Rome, or if it's the four angels of the Roman legions, perhaps the princes referred to each Roman legion as having its own demonic influence over it. We're not sure. But the effect and the truth is undeniable. These are demonic powers who are raising up this army, who are with this army, but they've been restrained. They've been champing at the bit to come down and crush Judah. They hate the Jews, but they've been restrained by God until now. And now they are let loose to come down upon the land. This, this um, fearsome army to bring God's judgment and devastation to those who have rejected him and rebelled against him. Now let's look at the commission that's given to the army. The commission of the army here is very different from the commission to the demonic host that we saw last week. They were told that they were not to kill anybody, that they were only to torment them, if you remember that. Here we are told that their specific commission is to kill. To kill. But look what it says. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Notice these four ways. Remember, four is the idea of material completeness. As far as a symbolic number, here's four aspects of time. We count time by hours. We count time by days. We count time by months. And we count time by years. And the point here is very clear that this invasion of the Romans took place exactly at the time appointed by God. He is in complete control of history. 
Why didn't they come sooner? Why didn't they come later? Because God was in control. He was the one who was working his purposes. And remember, though, he works his purposes in response to the prayers of his people. Those things are figured into his sovereignty. I can't explain it, but our prayers are part of the sovereign plan of God. And they move him, even though he ordained our prayers. So we could also say that this hour came about because of the prayers of God's people. It was a predetermined hour. But God raised up first a praying church who would plead with him to exercise his righteousness in the land. I'm praying today God is raising up a praying church in our country and throughout the world as we see the wickedness and the hosts of the leftists and the communists and the atheists and all the other ists there are out there who shake their fist at God, hate the Bible, hate Christ, hate his people, are triumphing. Are we praying? Are we withholding? Are we keeping back that hour, that day, that month, that year? Let us pray, and God will hear, and he will act. Time forbids me to go into a uh, consideration of this point, but I would direct you to Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27, as perhaps being thought of or relevant to this time, this declaration. In other words, this happened exactly at the hour, exactly at the day, in the appointed month, in the appointed year. Well, if you study the book of Daniel, there's a great prophecy of time called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in the 70 weeks of Daniel, at the very last week, something is determined. After Christ is crucified, it is determined. Well, let me read it real quick here. that God will judge the Jews for the rejection of his son. And it says in Daniel, here we go, Daniel chapter 9, a key text in both the book of Daniel and in understanding God's purposes for Israel. Know therefore and understand that the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks. And threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Referring to the, 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 um, the decree of Cyrus to return, to rebuild the walls in the city that took place during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. That is a prophecy of what we're studying in the book of Revelation. The Messiah was cut off, killed, murdered, Not because he himself was guilty, but he died as a substitute for others, not for himself. And it was determined at the end of the verse, because of that, a prince would come in the appointed hour and destroy the city, the city where Christ was crucified, and the sanctuary, that is the temple that rejected him, and the end of the nation would be with a flood, the flood of the Roman uh, scourge, and unto the end of that war, 
that's here being prophesied of and now being fulfilled in the book of Revelation, desolations upon the people of Judah are determined. That's all I'm going to say about that now, except that you wonder if this idea of this precise time is tied in with those words of the, the book of Daniel, and furthermore, with the words of Jesus that said, this generation shall not pass away till all things be fulfilled. And so there were time constraints from Old and New Testament prophecies that this would happen at an appointed hour. And these men come to slay the third part of men. The word men here is generic. That means it indicates men and women. Women were not spared. Young and old were not, dis- were not discriminated. All were killed mercilessly. A third part of the inhabitants of the land would die at the hand of the Roman soldiers. We learned in the earlier seal judgments that there was various things that would kill people. Pestilence and famine, for example. I think what this is saying is of all the ones who died in that terrible war, and, we, and Josephus claims that 1.1 million alone perished in the siege of Jerusalem, and he's talking only about the Jews there. Many Romans also died in that. So how many total Jews perished from all these causes? But a third of them would die at the sword by the hand of the Romans. In other words, these soldiers were commissioned to kill directly a third of the people. That was God's purpose. The other two-thirds died of other means. If you read Josephus in the siege of Jerusalem, uh, the majority died from starvation and from pestilence. But it's probably pretty accurate that about a third of them died in the war and were killed. So that's what I think the idea or the meaning of the third part. The specific commission of the army was to kill one-third of the people. What's the size of this army? Well, it's a huge host, verse 16. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. By the way, folks, young people especially, you who are studying, the word number here in, in Greek is arithmos. What's that sound like? Arithmos. Arithmetic! And here we can see the basic meaning of the word arithmetic, and that is to arrive at a sum by calculation. And now what arithmetic is? We use subtraction, multiplication, all these things. We arrive at a sum, a total, a number total, by means of these various uh, actions of multiplication and so forth. So arithmetic, arithmetic, it's in the Bible. Be sure you're good at it. And the number that was arrived at calculation, the arithmos of the army of the horsemen was 200,000. Now we hear here of the word army. We're talking about a military force. That's the basic meaning of the word. And here we have the collective army being spoken of, but the focus here is particularly upon the distinguishing aspect of the horse. It's true that the main body of the Roman army was foot soldiers, but the horse and its rider was a very powerful and feared aspect of their army. It is known that the army that marched into Palestine under Vespasian had a very significant contingent of cohorts and horsemen 
and the Jews essentially had none. Okay, so the horse in the ancient world was the heavy armor, as it were, of the day. And just like a foot soldier out there facing a, um, a tank is pretty much at a disadvantage, so men on foot were at a great disadvantage by the cavalry, by the horsemen. And what this vision is picturing here, where we see all the army on horses in the vision, is simply the symbolic way of saying that this army was invincible. To the Jews, who were all on foot, they had no chance. That's what the vision is saying. That's the symbolism of this army of horsemen. Now, we're told there was 200,000. Literally, the Greek is two myriads of myriads. Two myriads of myriads. Now, a myriad was a group of 10,000 in the Greek language. And so it's uncertain what this sum is indicating. If we took it literally, which obviously we cannot, there's never been anything like this, it would be 10,000 times 10,000 twice, or 200 million. But most likely it is used in the sense that where myriad is used throughout in a symbolic way of an innumerable host. And so this was an innumerable host two times over. It was a great army. This word myriad, by the way, just to show you what I'm talking about in Luke 12, 1, is translated by innumerable multitude. Here's what it says. In the meantime, when they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude, a myriad of people, insomuch that they trod upon one another, he began to say unto his disciples, and he goes on to teach. So there it's talking about a crowd that gathered around Jesus. So this is just a hyperbolic way. This is a uh, device of speech to make you think of a huge host. And the idea of specific multiplication and so forth uh, does not seem to be the point here. In Judges 7.12, we hear about the army of the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east. Here's what it says. That army was like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number, as the sand by the sea, by multitude. This is the eastern way of speaking. They're very extravagant in their descriptions, very picturesque in the words that they use. And here in Judges, it said that the camels alone of the army were like the seas, the sands on the sea, which, as we know, are impossible to calculate. 200 million sands of the sea? That isn't even scratching a couple handfuls, probably. So the point of the matter is, this passage is symbolic of a huge, huge army. Now, the actual Roman army that Vespasian led into Palestine is described for us by Josephus. And it amounted, in its core, to 60,000 trained men. Three legions and numbers of cohorts and other Kings of the east from that area around the Euphrates sent contingents to Vespasian because they were allies of Rome to join the army in going in to Palestine. They also had a host of servants who were with their masters, the soldiers and officers that Josephus tells us were a great host who were not numbered in the 60,000 and they all were trained in warfare and armed. 
and they also involved themselves in the battle. So as far as we know, historically, there were not 200 million. There's never been an army anywhere, any time, any place like that. But I think here's the point. They may have well been 200 million as far as the Jews were concerned because there was absolutely no way that they could stop the flood of this army and its war machine. Now, the description of the army is given to us in verse 17. The description here is quite dramatic. It's something that, that amazes you as you read it. Remember, this is a vision. John says, and I saw the horses in the vision. This is a revelation given to John in a visionary form. It is not the playing of a newsreel. These are symbolic images, which visions mostly are filled with. Remember we talked last week about these figures of speech. One of them is when it says as or like, when John was describing uh, these locust-like creatures. They had this like or as. That's what we call a simile in speech. Similes are used to say this is like that so that we get an understanding of what it is. So we, what we have here is not a literal description, but a metaphorical description. Metaphorical. Now, again, I, I say that word metaphorical a lot. Let me help us understand what we're talking about. Again, I would appeal, as I do very often, to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which everyone ought to have a copy of, a Christian dictionary. He says, a metaphor is a short similitude, a similitude reduced to a single word, or a word expressing similitude without the signs of comparison. Thus, that man is a fox, is a metaphor. But that man is like a fox, is a simile or a similitude or comparison. So when I say the soldiers fought like lions, I use a similitude. In metaphor, the similitude is contained in the name. A man is a fox means the man is as crafty as a fox. So we say a man bridles his anger. That is, he restrains his anger as a bridle restrains a horse. Beauty awakens love or tender passions. Opposition fires courage and so on. So when we talk about a metaphor here, this description, John does not use the word like. He just tells us this is what he saw. But that man is a fox, remember, means it was like a fox. And so when we see these horses having breastplates of fire and all of this, it's a metaphor to describe the terrifying power of the Roman army. Just like a man's not a literal fox when we say that man's a fox. So the army was not literally being described here, but it's to give us an idea of the fearsomeness of them and their power. First of all, they had breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. 
That is, as he looked at their armor, it appeared to him like the red of fire, the dark blue of this uh, jacinth, that's the, that, that referred to certain flowers or precious stones, and they were dark blue, and brimstone, which is a hard sulfurous rock that could be set on fire and burn, and its color was lemon yellow. Red, blue, and yellow. Did a little, little looking up on that, and it's inter- I found something very interesting. Red, blue, and yellow were the distinctive and popu- most popular colors of the Romans. I'm not saying this is what is at view here, but I just found this fascinating. And so I'm putting it forward because I think it may be what we're picturing here. The people would have understood this is the Romans that are coming because of the red, blue, and yellow that distinguishes them. As it says, the ancient Romans often incorporated a variety of colors into their artwork, architecture, clothing, and daily life. And the most popular colors, this source says, that they used were red, blue, and yellow. Another one said the colors of ancient Rome were red, which symbolized war or battle, blue, which represented the uniform of public servants, and yellow, which was used for clothing and buildings. In addition, as I looked on this use of yellow, it was the color the Romans associated with prosperity and fertility. It was associated by the Romans with gold, as well as with wheat, ready for harvesting. So this is for their colors, red, blue, and yellow. And the heads of the horses were the heads of lions. Again, a little bit of looking up, I found out that lions were a very important symbol to the Romans. They used them often, and they symbolized the courage and power and strength of the Roman people. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Again, the vision is highly metaphorical. This is telling us, of the power and the fearsome power of the Romans. Now, horses were terrific beasts of war. And in the warfare of the day, pretty much invincible. You know, the ancient poets, when they describe warfare and horses, they spoke in the same way that we're reading here. They spoke about the horses breathing out fire and smoke in their poetry. This was a common thing. And so as the readers of this in the original audience would not have been, oh, this is crazy. This is way out. This is far out. I mean, what can be going on here? They would have instantly identified that this is poetic speech to talk about the fearsomeness of the horse. But let me give you Thomas Whitmore in his commentary on Revelation and his excellent discussion of this metaphor in this verse. Out of the mouths or nostrils, For the breath may proceed from either. And in a hard chase or in great excitement, the horse breathes through his mouth. When highly excited, he drives his breath with great force through his nostrils. And we say he snorts. By this noise, he is sometimes described as being heard at a distance. Quote, Jeremiah 8, 16. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and all that dwell therein. End of quote. Uh, Whitmore's quoting Jeremiah 8.16. Pretty much a similar description of our vision here. Okay, getting back to Whitmore's quote. The horses which John saw breathe fire and smoke from burning brimstone. It is customary in our day in painting of the excited horse 
to show him with head uplifted, ears put forward, eyes kindled with animation and phosphorescence at his nostrils. So saith Job, quote, the glory of his nostrils is terrible, end quote, Job 39.20. To give the horses of the Eastern Cavalry the appearance of great animation, fierceness, and the power of destruction, the revelator describes them as breathing out flames, like the flames that proceed from burning brimstone, end of quote. And so here we have a metaphor, poetic speech, symbolic speech, of fire, smoke, and brimstone coming from the horse's mouth, all to show how terrifying the Roman army really is. Meeting them, if you were on the battlefield and you were a Jew at that day, you might as well meet a horse like this as meet this host of Roman soldiers. But there might be more intended than just the fearsomeness of the army when these three things are used, fire, smoke, and brimstone. Why do I say that? When you hear of brimstone and fire, what do you think of in terms of judgment? Bible, Old Testament, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Do you know those three terms, fire, smoke, and brimstone, are used to describe the original destruction of Sodom? Genesis 19. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of the furnace. This is an interesting connection because we are told in the book of Revelation chapter 11 verse 8 that spiritually the city of Jerusalem should be called Sodom. This was a Sodomite-like people. They had given themselves over to wickedness and just like God destroyed Sodom with fire, smoke, and brimstone, so he is now judging Judea. And so this is symbolic of wrath, the wrath of God on an evil people. And that's the metaphor here of the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone. It didn't come from heaven and rain down like it did in the Old Testament, but it came from the Roman army. They were God's fire. They were God's smoke. They were God's brimstone. And so the Jews, this judgment of the sixth trumpet prophesies, that they will be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, Jesus predicted that. He said, And thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. What day of judgment is he talking about? He's talking about A.D. 66 to 70. Now, it doesn't mean there's not an application to the final judgment. But Sodom and Gomorrah were judged in history by a cataclysmic act of God. The individual Sodomites would have to stand before God someday to give account. But the cities were historically judged. God judges nations and peoples in history. 
our nation will not be judged in, history, in uh, eternity at the great white throne. The individual citizens will. But if our nation's to be judged, it's going to be now. It's going to be in history. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. The day of judgment for the city of Capernaum was coming. And it would be more tolerable for Sodom than for them. And then Jesus said in Luke 17, 29, in the, in the context of the same teaching that he gave in Matthew on the, on the Olivet Discourse, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And if that was the day that he revealed his glory, that he was at the Father's right hand in sending the Roman armies into the land. Now, the destructive power of the Roman army is given in verses 18 and 19. By these three was the third part of men killed, men and women killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. In other words, by the the fearsome uh, slaughtering power of the Romans. Verse 19, for their powers in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads them which do hurt. Again, I'm going to appeal to somebody better at describing the meaning of these things in myself. Thomas Whitmore again, which I quoted earlier just a little bit about on the horses themselves. He says, here lay their power to which we have referred under the preceding verse. The revelator's object is still the same, to represent the cavalry to be as fearful as possible. In his picture, the horses breathe fire and smoke and brimstone, so much for their mouths. He still wished to heighten the description. And hence, he says, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, in the latter as well as the former. He says no more about their mouths, but proceeds. Quote, their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt, end quote. Such is the picture, Whitmer says. They had not such tails as horses generally have, the long, graceful, flowing hair, but instead of these, serpents were appended. Their tails were like unto serpents, that is, they resembled serpents, and like serpents, they had head, and with them they do hurt. The description is very singular, but the only intention is to make the horses appear as fearful as possible, to give them the power of doing fearful execution. It must be confessed that the horses and the horsemen thus armed would be invincible. Breathing fire and smoke and brimstone, they could not be resisted in front, and having tails like serpents with heads, the part of the serpent's body in which his fearful power lies, they were safe from assaults in the rear. Such is the picture. And when we consider how much in the habit of hieroglyphical writing, he means symbolic writing, were the ancients and what strange pictures they sometimes presented to give the ideas of fearful power, we shall be less surprised at the revelator, he means John, the revelator's images, end quote. I hope that sums up for you this, the power of symbolic language that this is all trying to bring across. In conclusion, we look at the impenitence of those who survived the plagues. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, 
Which plagues, by the way? I think it's all the six trumpet plagues that have come already. Plural. Not this last plague of the Roman army, but all that we've seen in the six trumpets up to this point that began back in chapter 8, verse 6. All these trumpets have been blown. All this suffering and misery and death has come upon this people in Judea. Some were killed by pestilence. Some were killed by war. But after all of this happened, they still didn't repent. They repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. This is not part of the sixth trumpet. It's the summary at the end of the sixth trumpet. That's why in your outline I have it set apart as number eight. It's sort of like number one, the preparation for the judgments of the trumpets. Number eight, the impenitence of those who survive the plagues of the first six trumpets. We have pointed out repeatedly that when God brings judgment in the world, in the earth, when he brings sanctions upon his covenant people, why does he do it? To bring them to repentance. We've looked at that carefully at Leviticus 26 a number of times. And it said he brought these series of judgments and it said if you didn't hear me and you still continued, then I'll bring seven times more. And if then you haven't been and the word was reformed by my chastisement, then I'll bring seven times more. And if still you haven't been reformed, haven't been brought to repentance, then I will bring exile. He was speaking to Israel. Even these judgments of the seals and trumpets, the door was still open to Israel if they would repent. What mercy God has shown to this wicked and obdurate people. But what does it tell us? That those who have survived these horrible plagues still would not repent. Are we surprised? We shouldn't be. We've seen it. In our own lives, haven't we? God has disciplined us, gets our attention, we shake it off. He, he, he makes it a little bit stronger. Shake it off. Maybe some are right in that position today. God's trying to get your attention through his hand of judgment, but you're not paying attention. All he will do is continue. Which, by the way, all the hardships we undergo in life are not always disciplined. Read the book of Job. Job's hardships were because he was righteous, not because he was unrighteous. Satan said, the only reason Job serves you is because you you put a hedge around him. Only good things happen to Job. If you let some bad things happen to Job, he'll curse you to your face. That was the challenge. And God, for the glory of his name and the ultimate good of his servant, allowed him to go undergo tremendous affliction, unspeakable sorrows. Because he was evil? No but because he was righteous. So all of our afflictions are not because of our sins, but all are for our good to purify us. But many of them are discipline, judgment, chastisement. And this is what we're seeing here. They wouldn't listen. And they wouldn't repent. They continued to trust in the works of their own hands. It's a metaphor for human pride. I will stand on what I can do. Hands here being a metaphor for all that man can think or 
devise or work he can do. I put my trust in myself. They wouldn't repent of that. They wouldn't say, wait, I can't handle this. My hands cannot handle this. My hands cannot sort this problem out. My hands are insufficient. I need thee, O God. That's what trouble is to bring us to. But no, not these. Verse 20, by the way, is a summary of the first table of the law, the Ten Commandments, the commandments concerning the worship of God. Notice, they continued to worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. They violated the first four commandments of the law. Verse 21 is the second table of the law, represented by what? Murders, sorceries, fornication, and theft. They were, they were covenant breakers. They were, they were those who did not keep the Ten Commandments. But the question comes, how could Israel in the time of the first century be accused of worshiping idols of gold and silver? They could be accused of that way back in 600 B.C. when the Babylonians came, but the one thing the exile did take from Israel was that outward idolatry. It was gone from Israel forever. But you know what wasn't gone? Inward idolatry. All men are idolaters at their heart because they put something above God. They put something in the place of God. And Israel still did that. And I think there can even be a literal application of this works of the hands, the silver, the gold, and the brass, and the stone, and the wood, in that Israel put their trust in their religious outward elements. Their trust was in the temple. The Jewish rebels, when Titus surrounded the city, said, they can't beat us because we have the temple. (laughs) What? They were worshiping the stone and the gold of the temple. Jesus had to rebuke the uh, Jews of his day who honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. You see, the Jews worshiped the works of their hands, their oral law had completely set aside the written true law of God given through Moses. And so they had completely corrupted the faith, and yet they thought they were so honorable unto God. They used to swear, for example, by the gold of the temple. Read this in Matthew 23. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, what's greater, the gold of the temple or the one who sanctifies the temple? That is God. In other words, they were more... Uh, committed to the gold of the temple in their religion than the God who sanctified the gold of the temple. We can do the same thing as Christians. People can, can, can worship their church buildings. They can uh, elevate the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and put their trust and hope in that the fact, I was baptized, I'm going to heaven. Or... I took the Lord's Supper, communion. They can put their faith in their priests or their pastors. And all kinds of ways religion can be turned into an idolatry. And I think that's what's being spoken of here under the terms of more gross idolatry to get the point across. Do you know that you and I can be guilty of worshiping devils, idols of gold, silver, and brass? Now, what about the devil's part? You know what's behind all idolatry according to the Old Testament and New Testament? Demons. Demons. Those who follow a false religion, I don't care what the false religion is, I don't care how good it looks on the outside, are following and worshiping devils. 
You see, the devils can transform themselves into angels of light and beauty and goodness as long as you don't worship God, as long as you don't keep his commandments, as long as Christ is not king and looks so good, so wonderful. Paul said, look out in the last days, which were the days then and still today, men will be seduced by doctrines of devils. Finally, verse 21, the second table of the law, all the wickedness that's described there, Josephus said this, no generation ever existed more prolific in crime. I am of the opinion that had the Romans deferred the punishment of these wretches, either the earth would have opened and swallowed up the city or would have been swept away by a deluge or have shared the thunderbolts of the land of Sodom for it produced a race of more ungodly than those, that is in Sodom, who were thus visited. Josephus in Book 5, Chapter 13. What are these murders? The unauthorized taking of human life. Note the plural here. All kinds of murders. Sorcery. Interesting word, which we'll deal with more later in Revelation. You know, here, let me give you the Greek term and see if you can figure out where we get, what word we get from English. Pharmakeia. Hmm. Pharmacy? Drugs. Sorcery is referring here to those who were experts in mixing up drugs and potions originally. It took a very dark meaning when it came to those who would mix up potions of poison. You want to get rid of somebody? Rome was rampant with poisonings. You read the histories. Somebody poisoned this, somebody poisoned them. And so these people who were sorcerers were those you went to for these potions of poison you would get to feed your enemies. They also then came to be connected with the black arts and the potions of the witches and the, and the, uh, the evildoers who were involved in the occult. It's a very broad term, but its central meaning is drugs. Because drugs were used to manipulate to the point of death or to alter the conscience so you could be con- controlled. Just like today, you want to manipulate and use somebody, get them drunk. And then you can lead them to, and manipulate them because of their state of mind. Fornication. This was all forms of sexual immorality. Unchastity of any kind. What's its word? Again, this is a, it's interesting, the word porneia. Porneia. Which meant to consort with a prostitute or a whore, which is what por- pornography is. When you view pornography, you're consorting with whores and prostitutes. Through pictures. Through images. You're consorting with them. You're giving yourselves over to their wicked arts and wicked, unchaste behavior. And thefts, the act of stealing, thievery of any kind. That's the picture of the generation upon whom the judgment fell. Um, Does any of that look familiar to this generation? Do we see a culture where there's murders taking place? It's astonishing. Things that come quickly to our minds are the mass shootings. But just look at the murders every, every um, for example, weekend in Chicago. And I mention that because they keep track of the shootings and killings in Chicago. Half a dozen to a dozen are shot and murdered every week, every weekend. And on and on we could go. But what about the murder of abortion? The blood of abortion. Sorcery. 
Drugs, the plague of drugs. The destruction and manipulation of the country by those who are mixing up drugs and sending them in. These, these um, terrible, what's the word that they're using? I, the mind, it slips me. What's the terrible drug that's become? Fentanyl, that's it. The fentanyl drug is, is the work of sorcerers and those who have who've concocted this thing. It's not even a natural drug. It's a synthetic type of, um, help me again, Bob. Narcotic. Yeah, and, they're sending, and it's destroying our country. It's destroying the, the young people. A whole generation is being poisoned and destroyed by it. But do we have sorceries in our country? Let's not even mention the whole pharmaceutical industry and the COVID-19 shots and getting all that. Fornication. Our, our, our society is awash with pornography, awash with unchastity, undressed people, uh, wickedness of every kind. It, it's just beyond belief. And thefts. Thievery is the name of the day, and the one who's leading the charge is the government. By its taxation, where they unjustly take from one and give to another in pursuit of their political programs and communistic and socialistic agendas. Is America marked by murders, sorceries, fornication, and thefts? You be the judge. Does any of that look familiar to you? terms of our culture, but let me ask you something a little bit more pointed. Does any of that look familiar in you? Are you guilty of those? Any of those? Are any of those four define you or me? Repent now before it's too late. God is extremely patient, extremely merciful, But there is a limit. There is a limit. And so what we have here in the sixth trumpet is the the picture, visionary picture, of God sending the Roman army into Judea to judge them. But the theology of the text is this. When I say theology of the text, I mean that which is ongoing truth that applies in every age and every generation, including ours. What we see here in the sixth trumpet is still happening in the world today because what it teaches us is that when God is determined to judge and humble a nation, one of the things he does is he uses the military might of another nation to be the instrument of his indignation. And when he sends such a judgment, the army that he sends cannot be resisted successfully. We think we're invincible in the United States. We have the most powerful army on the, in the earth. Well, God's uh, power is, it makes us look like dust on the balance. Our entire military system, all of its technology, all of its uh, occupants in the uh, military are like Isaiah says, like a little tiny piece of dust on a balance that is sort of an annoyance. So you blow it away so you can make sure there's not even that. It, it, it doesn't even register. Our military might doesn't even register in the balances of heaven. And if God would judge us, he could send any nation he wants and we'd be humbled and we could not resist them. The text also teaches that God sends judgments on people and nations so that they will repent. Under the heavy judgments of the hand of God, we are called to repent so that he might show mercy to us, that we might be turned from the madness of our ways that are self-destructive. 
But sadly, the theology of the text here today is that we are stubborn. We don't learn. And more often than not, we will not repent. But continue in sin, leading to our own destruction. Furthermore, the sins that mark a nation being ripe for judgment are the sins of false worship. The first false worship of so-called Christians and of the prevalence and activity of false religions. Secondly, that nation worships the work of its own hands. doesn't trust God, trusts its own hands. Third, murders are taking place on every side and of every kind. Fourth, drug abuse and sorcery. Fifth, the nation is given over to pornea, sexual immorality of any kind and chastity and prostitution and pornography. Sixth, theft is taking place on every hand and of every kind. They're the sins that mark a nation ripe for judgment, and America is ripe for judgment. Let us repent before it's too late. Father, thank you for the sixth trumpet, the power thereof. What you did in Judea is awesome, frightening. Help us to see this is not just some detached text that doesn't concern us, but it teaches us exactly how you are still governing your world and the universe and the nations. Bring us to repentance in this land as we are overwhelmed with false religion and false worship. Uh, We worship the work of our own hands in this country. Murder is taking place of every kind and on every uh, possible means. We're awash in drug abuse and the occult and sorcery. We've given ourselves over as a people to sexual immorality, and we gleefully steal from our neighbor, if not by our own hand, by the hand of government. Lord God, have mercy on us, we pray. Turn your church to be a praying church, praying for the overthrow of wickedness, the triumph of righteousness, and the peace of God once again coming over this land. Lord, we pray this will happen before our day of grace is over. In Jesus' name, amen.